Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Erie News, and today is December 2nd, 2023. It's uh, Saturday, December 2nd, 2023, and... Our first story is out of Stranger Than Fiction Stories, and it's titled, A Fascination with Darkness. What would you do if your eight-year-old daughter was inspired by the movie The Omen and waited with bated breath for the sequel titled Damien? The girl's name was Kim Goitia, and she lived in Sacramento, California. When The Omen premiered in 1976, viewing the film kicked off a fascination with the devil. She went on to collect several copies of the novel based on the screenplay. Two years later, the sequel, Damien, was released, and she was still enthralled with the dark side. According to her mother, Carol Summers, her daughter went goth before it became a thing, dressing in black, growling like an animal, and performing satanic rituals in her room. Kimberly also started using male aliases like Damien Thorne. Considering her behavior was quite disturbing, especially for a child, it's unknown if her family could have anticipated what Kimberly did on February 3, 1981. Kimberly, who was 13 years old, shot her 11-year-old sister Stephanie at the Greenhaven apartment complex located at 6330 Havenside Drive, which they had called home for four months. The girls lived there with their mother, Carol Summers, and her husband, Jim Summers. The couple married a week before on January 24th. The 13-year-old's explanation to the police was quite simple. It was that Satan had told her to shoot her sister. Stephanie had attended Gloria Day Lutheran School from September to January. From there, she was transferred to Hollywood Park Elementary School, and the day she died, she had been enrolled at Bear Flag Elementary School. For some reason, between early January and February 3rd, she had not attended school. Dr. William Geisreeder, the principal of Bear Fly Elementary School, where Stephanie had just enrolled, said, She seemed to be a nice little girl, sweet and quiet. She was frightened. I touched her shoulder and said we'd take care of her. Kimberly was enrolled at Sam Brannan Junior High School from the beginning of the week, but she had not attended school. Before that, she went to Joaquin Miller Middle School. Neither the girl's mother or stepfather were home. After the shooting, Kimberly called her maternal uncle, Vic Corbella, who then called police once he arrived at the complex. The neighbors had called as well. Kimberly lied to her uncle and also the police during her first interview, saying that four men in a brown Camaro drove into the parking lot while she was standing outside with her sister. Then she saw a flash and Stephanie fell. Once it was found that Stephanie was shot at close range and the casings were found near the body, she admitted to the shooting. She had taken her stepfather's 32 caliber automatic pistol and returned it to the drawer after using it. When he checked the gun, he found two of the bullets had been used. A detective who interviewed Kimberly shortly after the murder described her as being unemotional and not frightened. 
copies of the omen and the antichrist were taken from kimberly at juvenile hall after her arrest during her initial court appearance it came out that kimberly had truancy problems and was emotionally upset that her parents divorced even though this happened in 1972 when she was four years old despite the public defender's claim it was an accidental shooting several witnesses said they heard arguing a gunshot some cries and then another gunshot they were 10 seconds apart which went contrary to the accidental discharge theory during the trial it seemed that kimberly's anger was fueled by her mother's marriage to james summers however in 1976 when she became entranced by the omen movie he was not in the picture her mother carol norman married her father steve goitia in june of 1967 and they divorced in january 1972 the short marriage produced kimberly born in june 1967 and her sister in november 1969 the sacramento county deputy district attorney interviewed family friends and teachers and established kimberly's obsession with the occult she had been wearing black clothing for the prior six months and even retrieved them from the trash after her mother threw them out kimberly had told her mother that she quote prayed to Satan because she tried praying to God, but nothing happened, end quote. In the books, Damien Thorne took photographs of his victims before their death. Kimberly took a picture of her sister before killing her. She had two more pictures of herself taken after the shooting, dressed in black, of course. During the trial, it was recounted that Carol Summers had told co-workers that her daughter thought Satan was more powerful than God, and that she believed she was a boy and the son of Satan. Kimberly had written letters to Satan describing how, quote, soft his skin was and how beautiful he was, end quote. Friends of Carol Summers testified that Kimberly once told her mother, quote, if I do away with you and Stephanie, all my problems will then be over, and I could get away with it because I'm a juvenile, end quote. One of the documents submitted to the courts was that evidence would be offered that Kimberly's mother and stepfather were told of her plans to kill them while they slept after Stephanie's death. Supposedly, she had told her maternal grandmother, Helen Norman, about her plans. Victor Corbella, Kimberly's uncle, testified that when he visited his niece in the juvenile hall, she told him she had intended to kill herself when she went outside with her stepfather's pistol. She said she was going to take her own life on account of the marriage. Kimberly told him she couldn't stand her stepfather. She also told her mother that if she married James Summers, quote, an accident would happen and they would never be happy. End quote. Strangely, during the trial, there was no mention made of Kimberly and Stephanie's father, Steve Goitia, having attended the proceedings at all. Carol Summers worked in the, at the State Department of Justice, and her co-workers testified that she continually had problems with Kimberly, and she confided to many of them on a daily basis about her worries. Later, she called the four co-workers brought in to testify liars, claiming she had never said those things. According to one co-worker, Carol Summers told her that once she and her husband disciplined Kimberly, who, quote, started to growl, end quote. And another time, they had forcibly taken a steak knife away from her when she became angry. Kimberly had told her mother that Satan was sitting above them watching us. During the trial, the prosecution asked Carol Summers if she believed Kimberly was possessed by the devil and if she had asked a priest to speak to her daughter. Betty Walker the public defender strongly objected to the question which was disallowed to the questions which were disallowed two months later in april of 1982 judge sakuma 
dismissed the murder charge declaring the prosecutors failed to provide the necessary elements of malice or premeditation, and instead she was charged with voluntary manslaughter. He excluded the press and public from the highly publicized trial and issued a gag order about the sentency and sealed her records. A family member anonymously told a newspaper reporter that she was sentenced to four years and that she would be sent to a special school where she could be watched day and night and she could get some help. Under California law, even if she would have been found guilty of murder, she would have been out by the age of 21. Kimberly Goitia was released back into society without a word to the press. The public was unaware that a teenage murderess walked in their midst. Carol Summers died in 2018. Her husband also passed away. All those involved in the legal proceedings are deceased. One has to wonder what became of Kimberly. No doubt she changed her name, but present day she would be in her late 50s. But most importantly, after so many years does she still consider herself a servant of Satan. There you go. Was she crazy? Was she possessed by this devil? What was wrong with that girl? And of course there's no pictures of her to be found. Because of course, and I understand she was a minor, but yeah. Let's go on to the next article, which is out of Medievalist.net. And it's titled, Myth-Busting Literacy in the Middle Ages. In the vast tapestry of history, the medieval period stands out as a time of great upheaval and transformation marked by widespread technical progress. The historian John Guimpel and his book, The Industrial Revolution in the Middle Ages, even defends the idea that the spread of the watermill allowed the reduction of slavery, which was more common in antiquity. Right, but because remember, even in these times, slavery was, was, people would be, either through conquest or abduction, they would be for the purpose of slavery. However, how can this technical advance be reconciled with the fact that most of the population was illiterate? How can you become more technologically efficient while remaining illiterate? What are the limits of this illiteracy? The religious, royal, or, corp or corporate institutions want to maintain the population in this illiteracy? Question, what is illiterate? A medieval illiterate is a person who has not completed his letters, that is to say, who has not received a formal education, litera being the Latin grammar. An illiterate person can therefore write in the vernacular language. The end of the antiquity and the beginning of the Middle Ages begins with the writings of the Bible by St. Jerome during the Council of Rome in 382. It is also at the end of the Middle Ages that the Council of Trent, which was from 1545 to 1563, will rule again on the Bible, its access, its books, and its translations. The medieval period is therefore framed by councils around the book. From the beginning of the Middle Ages, it was necessary to live around books and to know how to read in order to better spread the message. St. Jerome in 384, exhorting the young Estochium, said, Read often, learn all you can, let sleep envelop you, the scroll still in hand. When your head falls, may it do so on a sacred page. Also, books and reading have always played a pivotal role in Christianity, which has earned it the term religion of the book through the success of his strategy of using books and textual propaganda. In the central middle ages a large number of poets or chroniclers were not or very poorly literate. Robert de Clary, who, which is this is in the 13th century, who seemed very illiterate, makes only a few references to Alexander the Great. In the 12th and 13th century certain groups like the Order of the Humilati 
were lay people who had not taken vows, but who sometimes allowed themselves to preach, and then were banned from it a few years later. Hughes de Burs, this is in 1220 AD, a secular knight poet and preacher even defends his literacy while he preaches. The Lateran Councils the third, this is in 1179, and the fourth in 1215, however, repeated the ban on secular preaching, which supposes that the practice of illiterate preaching is common. Now you understand what they're saying is, this will lead, of course, to Protestantism and the schism, is that all of the, if you went to Mass, it was held in Latin. And if for all intents and purposes, if you didn't know Latin, you were illiterate. The prevalence of illiteracy. In medieval Europe, illiteracy was widespread, affecting both the peasantry and to some extent even the nobility. This was due to several factors, primarily the lack of accessible educational opportunities and the general lack of importance placed on literacy. Monasteries were one of the few institutions that fostered education during the medieval period, but these facilities were mainly reserved for those on a religious path, excluding the majority of the population. However, the church and the royal institutions strove to transmit and teach to as many people as possible. Monastic schools were free. Also, King Louis IX of France encouraged the creation of the University of the Sorbonne, which, through the work of Robert de Sorbonne, sought to welcome students from the lowest social classes. There is no institution which advocates the prohibition of approaching letters. The difference is neither social nor gendered. For example, Eloise, certainly an exceptional woman, had the opportunity to study at the most prestigious university in the world in the 12th century. Also, many people belonging to the clergy were not religious, such as notaries, jurists, and lawyers. Question, will an illiterate man remain poor because of his illiteracy? It is often believed that one of the most profound impacts of illiteracy in medieval times was on economic opportunities. Peasants and laborers who couldn't read or write were limited to manual labor, often working in agriculture or as craftsmen. This lack of education restricted their ability to engage in more lucrative professions or trades, keeping them in a cycle of generational poverty. This theory would then assume that literate people would be the richest or even that they would maintain knowledge so that it would not be shared. According to the definition, an illiterate person just does not have direct access to Latin, Greek, or Hebrew texts, but he knows his own vernacular language. In the Central Middle Ages, numerous documents were written in vernacular languages. This allowed readers to improve their domains, ownership, and wealth. Consider these three examples. Walter of Henley wrote in French in the 13th century, Le Dit de Hospondarie, or Husbandry, which became a bestseller for agricultural management. It is a very easy read which plays on words and proverbs, so much that its rustic style kept the book famous until the 16th century. The 14th century work Le Ménagère de Paris gives lots of tips for a young housewife. The author commissions this work compiling numerous reference works from both ancient philosophy to practical management. And the letters of the Paston family in England in the 15th century leave a trace of a developed and international industrial complex managed by women who never wrote their letters. Thus, illiterate businesswomen in the sense that we have defined could be at the head of economic empires. 
Be illiterate and become the laughingstock of the clerics. In the high levels of the church, ignorance was understood as a source of evil. The two main causes of sin, according to St. Augustine, were ignorance and fragility. St. Gregory the Great reiterates, I'm not even going to say that in Latin, uh, aut ignorantia, aut infermitate, aut studio perpetur. Uh, this idea continued throughout the Middle Ages. For example, Julian de Vizlay distinguishes three ways of sinning as infirmite, ignorancia, act industria. Okay. Bernard of Claveau explains that the scandal of the weak comes from ignorance. Hugues de Brzee, a late preacher who defended his illiteracy in the 13th century, said he was the victim of mockery. He therefore uses his experience as a sign of authority. And basically it's, I preached the good, but I know that many will twist my sermons madly. Is this recurring criticism solely the fruit of the pride of the clerics who have done more studies than the common man? These same theologians praise humility and simplicity, yet their vindictiveness against ignorance is also a mean by which they seek to change mentalities concerning letters which should not be the property of an elite. Question. Were medieval farmers illiterate? Jean Quimpel's work, The Industrial Revolution of the Middle Ages, reports the level of knowledge and technical mastery that medieval peasants could have had. This is a mosaic to be reconstructed. However, historians agree that the medieval peasantry mastered practical knowledge. The historian Wimpel even calls it a society of agricultural engineers. Also, the popularization of the watermill since the 11th century suggests a real technological leap. The Doomsday Book is the inventory ordered by William the Conqueror notes that there were at least 5,624 mills in the country. Sources on literacy or illiteracy are quite rare for the peasant population. However, the village of Novgorod and its swamps have made it possible to preserve numerous documents written on birch bark containing hay bale, hay bale sales tickets, a school notebook, and other public posters. Thus, the peasant world, and in certain places, could have access to reading and writing, but the sources are too weak to draw generalities on the literacy or illiteracy of this social stratum. Are stained glass windows the poor people's Bible? This is a theory according to which stained glass windows are the content of medieval thought. Without stained glass windows, people in the Middle Ages, in the Central Middle Ages, would not know medieval biblical knowledge. This theory therefore assumes that at the time of Romanesque art, biblical knowledge was reserved for an elite, and that as progress progressed, knowledge tended to become democratized. However, the expression is not clear. A medieval illiterate is not a savage in the sense of a person completely free from the context in which he evolves. Stained glass windows are therefore not the alpha and omega of one's knowledge, but a useful support, especially as a catechetical catechism support. Dependency on others. It is often believed that being illiterate in medieval times meant depending on those who could read and write. This reliance on scribes, clergy, or educated members of the community further reinforced the social hierarchy. The literate were often seen as gatekeepers to knowledge, further limiting the illiterate's ability to control their own lives. But in our time, also the managers of important companies still do not write themselves, but have them written. Dependence on scribes is not linked to the literacy of the person dictating the information. Dictating information does not mean that we do not control it. For example, 
the charters of the Abbey of Cluny mention acquisitions or sales of land by the abbots. No one can conclude from reading these documents, which certainly come from the Abbey, that the peasants were robbed in the purchase or sale. Illiteracy in medieval times was not a significant obstacle. The illiterate man did not really have limited economic opportunities. He had a hindered access to specific knowledge. The theoretical knowledge of theological studies certainly concerns a small part of the population, but the fact that certainly exceptions of students of low extraction can study suggest a certain freedom. Some may confuse illiteracy with stupidity. However, the legacy of the medieval era inspires great reverence for the ingenuity of the times in many areas. It is true that the majority of the medieval population lived through farming and that the heritage left by this population is more intangible than material. It is accumulated experience of centuries of agriculture which led to demographic growth in medieval Europe. And of course, what this comes down to is illiteracy, if, if you knew something or you knew how to write or read little by little, if it wasn't Latin, that, but illiteracy was termed as, as far as what was your knowledge of Latin? Because all the texts were being written in Latin. All right. And also, again, it says illiteracy did not mean that you were stupid because a lot of people might not be literate in the sense of letters, but they knew how to do many things and they had ingenuity, what they said about engineering. And this also comes back to the, the, the that we need to, that I think sometimes we miss out even now in modern days, that we're not talking here higher education. We're talking about what used to, let's say, what grade school or through high school, which is arithmetic, you know, writing, reading, writing, and arithmetic. These were the core things. If you had that, the person that had the, um, how can I say, the desire, could read other books and from there expand your ability to just gain more knowledge. If that's, that's the kind of person you were, you were. But at the end of the day, if you had that basic, but yeah, those doesn't mean that you needed an advanced education. As long as you have that reading, writing, and a myth, arithmetic, you can do a lot of things. And basically, that what they say there, that is was the tipping point in some cases, whether your family or your children, your descendants, were going to always stay farmers, which, by the way, wasn't a bad thing. But if they ever wanted to do other things, go beyond farming, whether they wanted to become tradespeople or become merchants, without any literacy, they were kind of stuck where they were at. I think that's very interesting because we never think of that as far as even back then. Because let's face it, that's what everybody wants. Everybody wants to go forward. Okay, this next story is out of Stranger Than Fiction Stories and it's titled Something About the Painting. What happens when you're a kid and your parents are the ones that bring home an object that opens the door to something sinister? This story is allegedly true as told by the person that experienced it. Quote, This story entails a painting that my mother brought home from an auction when I was about eight. My parents imported and exported antiques and fine wines for many years. My mother, Natasha, is Russian-born but grew up in the United States from the age of three and always had the love of anything old and unusual when it came to furniture and artworks, something that seemed to have rubbed off on me a little. My parents would regularly go to auctions and estate sales and like to purchase interesting pieces for their business. It was rare that anything purchased at these sales ever made it 
home to become part of our house, unless it was out of the ordinary or my parents liked it too much to part with it. My childhood home looked like a cross between a madman's idea of a yard sale and an antiques market belonging to an insane hoarder, but it made for good fun and interesting conversation, and many a good fort. None of the furniture or artworks had previously bothered me as far as I can remember until my mother purchased a painting by an unknown artist. It's never been signed and research has never uncovered who painted it or who the subject actually is. All we knew is that the family who put it in the auction bought the home they had found it in and didn't like the painting or several pieces of furniture that the last owners had left behind. So off to the sales they went. It was a rather large lot of over 50 items. My mother purchased a painting and a sideboard full of silverware and plates of varying ages locked inside. We got them open after we got it home. It was strange as my mother had been told it was empty. Not so much as it turned out. The painting is of a woman of about 30 years old, maybe older but it's hard to tell, wearing a long blue-gray gown standing in a veranda of an old house. Next to her is a table with a tea set and kettle almost looks like some cake or sandwiches on a plate. There are some flowers in a chair and part of a window. Whoever did the painting had a lot of talent as the detail is incredible. It was probably painted around 1900 to 1910, judging by the fashion she's wearing. My mother brought it home and we hung it in the hallway next to my parents' bedroom, between the main bathroom and a little room my dad used to do his paperwork in. I felt very strange around the painting from the first day it was hanging up. The hallway in summer was comfortable and not too warm, but after the painting was hung up, the area around the painting turned almost ice cold. Passing the painting, I'd get goosebumps on whatever exposed skin I had. I also started feeling like the lady in the painting was watching me. My twin sisters started saying that they didn't like looking at the painting as it made them feel uncomfortable, and like they weren't meant to be around it. My baby brother would walk on the other side of the hallway to it, and when asked why, he said he didn't like the lady and that he was cold when he looked at her. He was five at the time, nearly six. Soon it went past just feelings in the hallway. At night, we'd start hearing whispers that hadn't been there previously. Our house already had its share of spooky behavior we had gotten used to, but this was new. Movement of a flash or blue-gray like the dress out of the corner of your eye. A strange touch occasionally in the hallway when no one else was around. This may sound like something from Tales from the Crypt, but I assure you this isn't something I saw on TV. I only wish sometimes it was. After my father, who was six, five, six feet five inches and weighed 350 pounds, got a cold hand run up his back when he was in the shower was when any real notice of what we had all said to our parents got attention. Since we were used to other ghosts in the house, we at first thought, oh, it's just another spirit making itself known to us as it's new here. But then, but then things got bad fast. One, my baby brother, let's call him Adam, was tripped on the stairs and pushed by a cold hand when he tried to get up again. Two, the big fern we had in the, next, in the hall next to the painting suddenly started dying. It was over 20 years old and had no previous problems. When we moved it away from the painting, it went back to being fine. It's still alive today, but one side of it looks a little mangled. The side facing the painting never was the same. The branches grew back weird like something had infected them. It was checked out and tested by plant specialists and they couldn't find anything wrong with the old plant. Third, our dogs, Frankie and Dex, both terrier mixes, wouldn't go past the painting without whining or growling at it. 
They were normally very placid and gentle dogs. Our aunt's dog, Lula, a poodle, had to be carried past it when we used to babysit her. She wouldn't walk past it or even look at it. Next one. Our cats tried to claw it one time when it fell off the hook onto the ground. Our normally placid Maine Coon cats, Sally and Meg, both went nuts trying to scratch it until we took it away. The last one. It started coming off the hook every night and sat against the wall upright every morning when no one touched it. My mother, a very spiritual person, who put up with our friendly spirits in the house with a grain of salt, as they didn't bother her, decided that this painting had to go and something was wrong with it, to which we all agreed. So off to the auctions and went. Several times my mother, who knew the buyers, found out they only kept it a month. They too heard whispers and their cat also attacked a painting and gave it to a neighbor who liked it. The neighbor sold it after her dog freaked out around it. It kept getting sold on or auction or given away until 2014 when a man who collected art in Florida bought the painting and did not know of its history. Having again tried to research its past, he only found that it was possibly a painting of an artist's wife who died young. I don't know if it's true or not. There is no real record of the artwork anywhere and it's not signed. The man who owned it last, I heard, keeps it in his basement as it frightened his grandchildren. He says he won't sell it on and keeps it locked up. I think, too, he knows something isn't right with it. I'm worried that he's old. What's going to happen when he dies? This painting, I think, isn't safe. Either a ghost is in it or attached to it and it's not friendly. It really should be destroyed. I know it probably sounds like a made-up story for kids. And an adult man like myself shouldn't be weary of an old oil painting of someone unknown. The painting is dangerous. That's the end of that story. And, of course, I can find a picture of the picture. Now, this is another weird painting. Many strange paintings are of the most innocuous subjects. At first glance, there's nothing sinister about them. It's only after you study it that certain things become terrible, and all you want to do is run away from it. Psychic Philip Solomon owns a portrait with a history of bad luck to its previous owners. The origin started 30 years before when a friend of Solomon's bought it from a shop in Horsley Fields, Wolverhampton. This is in UK. He described it this way, quote, From the moment she got it home, my friend had problems with the painting. I kept falling off the wall of its own accord and terrifying her children who said people came out of the painting. She asked me if I would take it off her hands, which I did. But I have to be honest, it even unnerved me. I quickly sold it onto a lady who had a bric-a-brac shop on Walsall Road, Willen Hall. But she had big problems with it too. It scared people and some even fainted after looking at it dogs also hated. Once more it came back to me free of charge. End quote. It was sold to other owners, even being sent to America. However, it did return to Woolen Hall. Solomon explained how the painting was still frightening. I let a family member have it who actually liked it. A month later it was returned to me with a comment, strange things are happening. I thought the best thing to do was just keep it in my garden shed, wrapped and covered. My dog hated it, immediately growling and barking at it. Staff at the Robins said they were really scared by it. I put it on my Facebook page and from all quarters read reports of the same visions that were seen in the past. Now the question remains, who originally painted the picture which might explain why it's so terrifying? And this right here is, for those of you watching the video version, this is the painting right there. I don't know. You know, you look at some things and some people don't get it and then others are like wow I get it I get it so 
All right, let's go on to our next one. This is out of Science Alert and it's titled, Study Finds a Potential Downside to Vigorous Exercise We Didn't Know About. Bad news for any extreme exercise junkies out there. Excessive vigorous exercise could muffle your immune system. At least that's what a study analyzing over 4,700 post-exercise fluid molecules from firefighters suggests. This may be problematic for workers with consistently physically demanding jobs that require intense fitness training, such as emergency workers and athletes. People who are very fit might be more prone to viral respiratory infection immediately after vig vigorous exercise, suggests Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, PNNL, biomedical scientist Ernesto Nakayasu. Having less inflammatory activity to fight off an infection could be one cause. While there is strong evidence to suggest that moderate physical activity among healthy individuals can favor the immune system in the long run, what happens to the immune system directly following vigorous exercise is controversial. There is little reliable evidence that supports the claim that intense exercise heightens the risk of, of opportunistic infections, although a few previous studies have noted self-reported upper tract respiratory infections in athletes compared to control groups after strenuous activities. Whether these are correlations or causations is unknown. So Nagayasu and colleagues tested the blood plasma, urine, and saliva from 11 firefighters before and after 45 minutes of intense exercise, hauling up to 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of gear over hilly terrain. We wanted to take an in-depth look at what happens in the body and see if we're able to detect danger from exhaustion in its earliest stages, explains PNNL bioanalytical chemist Kristen Burnham Johnson. Perhaps we can reduce the risk of strenuous exercise for first responders, athletes, and members of the military. There's no question exercise does wonder for our health, from boosting moods to strengthening our immune systems. But, as in previous studies, the new research detected possible signs of immune suppression within the workout firefighters. Amidst the expected physical changes, helping our bodies maintain the increase in fluids, energy, and oxygen, that exercise demands there was a decrease in molecules involved in inflammation. This was accompanied by increased opiorphin, a dilator of peripheral blood vessels. What these changes ultimately mean for the short-term function of the immune system is unclear, but the researchers have few ideas. Opiorphin may increase blood flow to muscles during the exercise regimen to improve the delivery of oxygen and nutrients, the team writes in their paper. We postulate that the deep decrease in inflammatory molecules we observed in the saliva after exercise might represent an adaptive mechanism to improve gas exchange in response to higher cellular oxygen demand. There was change in the participants' oral microbiome too. The scientists suspect this was due to the increase in antimicrobial peptides found in the firefighter's mouth after their intense activity, possibly to compensate for the immune suppression, although this conclusion is contested. However, this increase in antimicrobial peptides had no effect on inhibiting E. coli growth, Nagayasu and colleagues elaborate, suggesting a limited capacity of antimicrobial peptides within the oral cavity to protect against host infections. That said, other scientists argue some of the changes observed may not be indications of immune suppression but of a heightened state of immune surveillance and immune regulation. While a within-subject comparison reduced the impact 
other small sample size, firefighters experience unique exposures to pollutants during fires, which may also change their immune reactions. What's more, the study only considered healthy and active men. The researchers cautioned so further research amongst a broader community is needed to confirm their findings. However, taken with previous studies, there is evidence supporting a relationship between physical demands and a higher incidence of respiratory infections, Nagayasu and team concluded. And this research was published in Military Medical Research. You know what that tells me? Moderation in everything, including exercise. It's like one is can be just as bad as the other. No exercise or too much or too strenuous because if it lowers your immunities and you're at risk of upper respiratory infections, it's like it kind of defeats the purpose of the exercise, you know. And again, it's exercise. There's times where, you know, maybe something happens that you have to go there and, you know, you get uh, a surge of adrenaline and you do it. That's different. But like that systemic exercise or these people that go all out, that's very interesting. Moderation, moderation, moderation. All right. So let's go. Um, let's go back to stranger than fiction stories, and the this is titled "Ghost Stories for Day of the Dead." This was published. This was, um, as everybody knows, right after Halloween. It was there's. A couple of days, there's the Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, and Day of the Innocents, and things of like that. There's there's a the couple of days where historically, All Hallows Day, which were November 1st by the Catholic Church, was set aside to venerate martyrs, all right? And then November 2nd was set aside to pray for people who were in purgatory. In other words, people, the dead who needed prayers. And from there... It went out and became uh, celebrations of, you know, when you see the Day of the Dead here in the United States, you know, uh, even across the world where people visit the cemetery and uh, visit with their dead relatives and, you know, clean up graves or things of this nature. Every country has their own little version of that. And part of what goes on was that there was always, you know, everybody, you know, hears about that traditional Samhain when the veil is the thinnest. Believe it or not, it's not really Samhain. The, November 1st and the 2nd, one of the dangers seen was where you had the ghost or the spirits, you know, obviously, discarnates, who had nobody that remembered them or descendants or family who, you know, came to their graves or even remembered them. In other words, sievers were hungry ghosts. These were the days where people had to be careful because they were basically, for lack of a better word, the unwanted ghosts. Nobody remembered them. Nobody went to their graves, cleaned it up, did anything like that. But anyway, these are ghost stories for the Day of the Dead. Uh, and these are a little bit... Um, these are a little bit older, but let me see. Hold on a minute. Now, let's go let's go to this one I like this one better this is also out of stranger than fiction stories and it's called the spirit of the bartender bars taverns lounges or even man caves could be the places with the best memories or perhaps the ugliest and bloodiest ones there are spirits and then there are spirits these are some of those stories 
The following is a story of a hunted bartender picture. This style of print is very common. In other words, this is not tied to an original artist. Perhaps what this person experienced is what happened around this print while it hung on a wall. This is the story. Last year, my junior year of college, me and four of the friends moved into a house together. We all brought our own things to decorate the house with posters, paintings, etc. One of the paintings was of a bartender pouring a martini. We would end up calling this painting Martini Man. I had a weird feeling about it right off the bat. His wide eyes would follow you around the room, and there was just something creepy about it. When you were alone with it, it felt like there was a real presence with you. About a month or two after the move in, activity started happening. One day, I was sitting on the couch in the living room playing some video games. I started hearing slamming at the front door, and it was loud. It sounded like somebody sprinting and body slamming the door. By the way, we have a foyer, so I can't see the door from the living room. Thinking it may have been a loud knock, I go to see if there's anyone there. Nothing. This persists throughout the day, and I get up several more times to see if anyone is there. Nothing each time. It's the middle of the day, so I'm more confused than creeped out. I decide to test the door, shaking it, slamming it, knocking on it, even jumping into it. Nothing. I did was close to as loud as the noises I was hearing. To top it off, this happened one day and one day only. I never heard this happen again. Not necessarily attributed to the painting, but I'll explain how it connects later. The last personal account is about the footsteps. This happened in the summer when it was just me and one other guy living in the house. It was about 2 a.m. and I was lying in bed playing on my laptop. I start hearing really loud footsteps coming from downstairs. They were like fast thumps. It sounded like someone sprinting while completely drunk. At first, I just thought it was a drunken roommate, but there was something strange in the pattern to them. I would hear them start in one part of the house, stomp to another, stop for a while, then pick back up in a completely different part of the house. Eventually, they came running up the stairs directly to my door and stopped. I was frozen with fear during the silence. Then, it started up again, downstairs this time. It kept going for at least 10 minutes more. I should probably explain why I pin all this on the painting and not the house itself. I already said its eyes would follow you around the room and had an overall creepy vibe to it. People would come over and say that the painting scared them without hearing any of these stories. We had some girls over for a party and they insisted that we take the painting down. I hastily agreed and took it off the wall. That's when I saw written on the back of the canvas the name of the painting, The Spirit of the Bartender. Quite frankly, I thought this was hilarious as I had been expressing my distaste for this painting to my roommate for some time, and this corroborated my claims nicely. After that year, the roommate to whom it belonged moved out, and he took the painting with him. The activity died down after that. He ended up giving it to the bar he worked at, and they threw it out after only two weeks. I can't imagine why. We actually managed to find the artist on the internet, and it seemed he just paints the same thing over and over again. I'll attach an image of one of the works that's closest to the, what we had in our home, which is something like this. You see these two right here. I don't think it's this one, uh, but see, they're very similar. I think it's this one right here. If you're watching the video version of this, see pouring the martini. And I did my own research, and this type of, it was like one of these uh, mass-generated paintings, that same style, I guess, for that purpose so that people would hang them like in their bars or stuff so there you go and then the next story about a weird painting 
Now, a reader of the story commented the following. This is somebody that read that original story about the bartender and commented the following. My sister was a maritime artist. She committed suicide last July in West Palm Beach. My wife and I bought a lot of her unsold pieces back. Some are really well done, so we hung several of the larger ones. Meanwhile, my sister's ashes got lost in the mail when the mortuary sent them back to me in Houston, Texas. It took two months and her remains made several round trips from Florida and back. However, my sister did love to travel. Once the ashes finally arrived is when the trouble started. When we get in an argument about her, one of the paintings always falls off the wall. Her ashes are in the guest bedroom closet. The guest bedroom was our three houses cat's favorite afternoon hangout. Now they refuse to go in there. My father-in-law has a hatteras with a large enclosed cabin that can accommodate several people. We are going to invite some of my sister's closest friends and go out a bit in deeper water. There's a large back deck and a door in the transom so you can step down near the water. We will go when the weather is calm this summer, spread her ashes, and give our cats their hangout pad back. By the way, um, I didn't, but there was enough information that I did research, and yes, this person did exist. That story that he has about the sister and stuff like that, yeah. I did verify this is true, based on fact. Now, this is another story, okay, for you watching there. This is this is the picture that they're talking about. Uh, this is... Um, this is the story, quote, I visited the John Ringling Museum of Art and Estate in Sarasota, Florida a few years back. There was a haunted painting there. It was a portrait of a young woman wearing a deep emerald bodice and a blue scarf on her head. As she looked down with her body turned down a bit and it cast a shadow on her breast. I took a photo because the depth of the emerald velvet bodice seemed to be an abyss. It was so dark and the painting had a licked surface which Dutch painters from the Renaissance era would use as a technique to diminish brushstroke textures so that colors and implied textures were more intense. I remember getting stuck on this piece. Her eyes were so sad. The textures were so rich, too rich, too perfect. I decided I didn't like this work after all. When I was later looking through my pictures, I noticed a red devil or demon looking thing where that deep abyss of dark green emerald was when I saw it in person on the wall. I showed so many people this picture and asked them if they saw anything unusual and every single person saw that red demon right away. It was not on the painting at the museum but it showed up on my picture. No other photos had these red obstructions or whatever in them but I took multiple pictures of this painting from different angles and every picture has the red demon. I don't know what to tell you about that. Okay this is another story. In February, this is going back a few years, in February of 1893, J.M. Mont Robinson, a bartender who lived in Summitville, Indiana, drowned himself. He went to a gravel pit filled with water near town and left his coat and hat on the shore. He was 40 years old and left behind a wife and four children. He had some financial reverses and his health was bad. The pond was deep and saloon men from where he worked had been cutting ice from it during the cold weather. The next day his boss passed by and saw the hat and coat on the bank. Right away he realized they belonged to Robinson. Suspecting what the man had done, he went back to town and brought a party of friends with grab hooks and dragged the bottom thoroughly. Eventually the body was found and taken to his home. It seemed that once Robinson lived in good circumstances and owned a farm near Summitville, but he lost it through bad management and sickness. Less than a month after he died, Mount Robinson 
was seen near the pool where he drowned. People who passed by the area at night, which was half a mile outside of town, would see him standing on the bank as if in the act of plunging into the pool. It seemed he didn't realize he had been successful in ending his life. There you go. And that's, the, and that's another example of what happens, uh, you know, as far as the spirit of the bartender. In other words, this was not just a, 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 um, a picture. This was an actual bartender. And then <clears throat> the last story is out of Mysterious Universe and is titled Spooky Cases of Haunted and Cursed Furniture. Might as well, right? And we're talking about <laughs> haunted haunted portraits. Let's, let's go to the furniture. It seems that in this world, there are not only haunted places, but also haunted things. Once very unusual phenomena of the paranormal world is that of the haunted object. In these cases, all manner of normally mundane items will be permeated and imbued with supernatural forces, sometimes to the point that the object in question will be deemed cursed and locked away. There have been cursed or haunted paintings, cars, and others, but sometimes the item in question seems like the last thing one would expect paranormal weirdness to gather about. Here we will delve into a world of haunted and cursed furniture, which, for whatever reason, have caused dark forces to gravitate towards them. Located along the French Riviera in Monaco is the resort gambling mecca of Monte Carlo. The area is known as a glitzy, opulent, and glamorous playground of the rich and famous, and is one of Europe's leading tourist resorts. So it's not really the place one would immediately associate with curses or hauntings. But in the Monte Carlo Casino, there supposedly sits a cursed table that drives people to insanity and suicide. The table supposedly claimed 113 lives in a 10-year span between 1890 and 1900, with some seats at the table apparently more cursed than others. If someone is to sit in one of the cursed spots, it is said that they will soon after leaving be overwhelmed by the compulsion to kill themselves. And one report from 1900 says some other some of these deaths. Quote, one day five years ago, my neighbor at the table was a young Parisian. He sat in one of the death chairs and won. When the doors closed, he carried off 200,000 francs. Imagine my anticipation when next morning I found him installed to the left of the croupier. I felt like tearing him away or slipping a card into his hand to warn him against the seat he had chosen. But my official character forbade me to interfere, and besides, my advice would have been scorned. For the fellow gambled like one mad. He lost his winnings of the day before and 200,000 francs of his own money. When his last 1,000 francs note was gone, he rose and, swaying to and fro like a drunkard, stumbled out of the hall, laughing immoderately. Two of my men led a merry chase for this unfortunate. When they caught up with him, he jumped off the railway bridge, knocking out his brains. Another case that haunts my dreams. One day, an elderly gentleman, Signor Antonio Cesare, who knew my connection with the casino, compelled me to give him the seat I was occupying. I did so with a bleeding heart. For this old man was a very picture of health, and I was an intimate friend of his cousin, the mayor of Bantimigli. While this gentleman lost nearly a hundred thousand francs in the day and evening, when he got up, his own mother wouldn't have known him. He looked ten years older, his flesh had fallen away, madness stared out of his eyes. Next day, they fished his body from the lake at Menton. 
Then there were the Parlingtons, refined English people. They were on their wedding trip. I never forgot the look of delight with which young Mrs. Parlington pocketed her first small gain. The pretty bride fairly coaxed her husband to stake ten francs. When night came, they had a couple of thousand francs in their pockets. Next morning, they took chairs number 23 and 24. Number 23 brought them the usual luck. They gained 30,000 francs, but on the following day came the inevitable change. The 30,000 francs went back to us, and the couple's little fortune followed. They walked from the room, deathly pale, hand in hand. My detectives informed me that they took the train for Nice without troubling about their baggage. They shot and killed themselves in the Windsor Hotel there. Everybody can see that the clothes on the suicide table is of more recent make than the rest, yet the casino company is only 318 francs the poorer on that account. Here are the figures. Cloth for double table, 250 francs. Nailing down, 18 francs. Total, 318 francs. Against these figures, there is an offset of 600 francs, which the casino company would have been obliged to pay the young Russian for traveling expenses. This Muscovite prince refused to become a pensioner of Monsieur Blanc's heirs and blew out his brains over the table where he had dropped his all, 400,000 francs. It happened two years ago, and it nearly cost me my job. The circumstances that one of the directors of the company drew me into a corner to talk about the same Russian's persistent ill luck just a minute before the shot rang out. That alone, that alone saved me from disgrace. The incident itself was soon forgotten and had no bearing on the game. It had nothing to do with the superstitions attached to the suicide table. The ill reputation of that piece of furniture was of many years standing when the Russian committed that flagrant breach of casino etiquette. He was number 85 on my list of unfortunates. Oh, there you go. <clears throat> and Monte Carlo, you know, of course, is it's a principality, I believe. Grace Kelly, she, is, she married into the family. Now, is there anything to this? Another supposed haunted table can be found at the historic Black Horse Inn public houses on Nuthurst Street in Nuthurst, West Sussex, England. Over the years, local people have observed pints of beer and other objects sliding across this table by themselves, or objects even flying off to fall to the floor. According to local lore, this was the table at which, many years ago, regularly sat a man who could see the old post office opposite to observe his wife visiting her lover, the postmaster whom he subsequently murdered and buried in St. Leonard's Forest. The spirit of the murderer has supposedly haunted the table ever since, still watching over the post office for the appearance of his wife. Perhaps one of the most infamous of these pieces of a haunted furniture is a simple unassuming oak chair on display at the Thirsk Museum in North Yorkshire, England. The story goes that a Thomas Bugsy Bugsby was arrested, tried, and condemned to death after he murdered his father-in-law, Daniel Oti, in 1702, after an argument over money. Apparently, just before he was hanged, he was sitting in the chair and cursed it out of spite. After this, the chair gathered about it the dark reputation of causing anyone who sits in it to meet with misfortune and death. In fact, so many people have apparently died from sitting in the chair that it was donated to the museum and hung up from the ceiling so that no one would ever sit in it again. Another cursed chair is connected to the Bindley Hotel in the tiny town of Blanchester in southwestern Ohio. 
the hotel harbored a simple rocking chair that immediately started trouble when it arrived in the late 1800s, when the first person to sit in it, sit in it a Mr. William Rockhill, promptly had a heart attack and died. At first, this wasn't really associated with a chair, but this was followed by a string of strange freak accidents and injuries surrounding it. One man's head was cut open by it. One man was forcefully thrown out of it and broke his arm as a result. One man's finger was smashed beneath it. One toddler was trapped beneath it and almost died. One man's collarbone was broken by it. One man was pushed down the stairs because of it. One dog was knocked unconscious by it. The list goes on and on. Soon the chair was being called the Hoodoo Chair of Blanchester, claiming more and more victims. It got to the point where the owner of the hotel, Edward Hawk, decided that the chair was definitely cursed and went about trying to get rid of it. But this turned out to be easier said than done. No one would accept the chair, and even when Hawk tried to give it away, the chair apparently didn't like being moved because those who tried would be knocked down by an invisible force. Even more bizarrely, supposedly could not be destroyed. Hawk would say of it, quote, I can't smash the blame thing any more than I can smash the hoodoo. I took it out in the backyard the other day. Couldn't get one of the men about the place to touch it and tried to send it to kingdom come. I was swearing mad at the crazy thing. It was ruining my trade, my disposition, and my appetite. Will you believe it, sir? The very first blow I aimed at its murderous back, the axe flew off the handle and hit me such a whack on the shoulder I was lame for a week. I'll acknowledge I was some scared, and I gave up trying to turn the chair into firewood. End quote. The only time they were able to successfully remove the chair from its room was when they painted a white cross on it. But this did little to decrease the object's dark potency. When it was put on the porch, it went about causing all manner of mayhem, including making people trip and fall, catching people's hair in it, tripping over backwards to smash people's heads into the wall, and ejecting those who would try to sit in it. It also allegedly moved around on its own accord throughout the night, or would be found in different places. Hawk decided to move the chair to the attic. But shortly after doing this, a fire broke out and filled the hotel with smoke. Not long after this, the hotel was hit by a tornado that tore the roof off, and Hawk decided he'd had enough. He apparently sold the hotel and moved away. But in the years that followed, the hotel continued to be plagued, plagued by fires, accidents, and financial troubles, until it finally went out of business in the early 1900s. It is unknown what happened to the chair after this. Is it still out there or causing trouble? Who knows? Yet another haunted chair is kept at Balleroy Mansion in Philadelphia. The sprawling 32-room Balleroy Mansion was built in 1911 and over the years has accrued thousands of historical pieces that have been handed down from notable subjects including Napoleon Bonaparte, General George Meade, and founding father Thomas Jefferson, just to name a few. It also supposedly incredibly haunted is incredibly haunted with one of its most famous phenomena being what is called the death chair. Located in what is called the Blue Room, the 200-year-old chair is believed to have once belonged to Napoleon himself, but it is more famous for its ghost. It is believed that a female ghost called Amelia haunts the blue chair due to a deadly curse caused by insanity, usually appearing as a mysterious blue mist. The lore has it that she does not take kindly to people sitting in her chair and that four brave souls one of former Balleroy curator, have met tragic ends and freak accidents after sitting in the chair. There's also an account given to the Citrus County Chronicle by a man who claimed he bought a haunted chair in the tiny town of Magnolia, Delaware in 1984. 
He says of his experience with it, quote, When I bought the chair, I was renting the upstairs of a Victorian house in Frederica, Delaware, which was in the town's senior center. I had a male friend who was sharing the rent. I worked days and he worked nights, so it worked out well. Anyway, I set the chair in the living room. The next morning, it was sitting a few feet out from the wall. I put it back and did not think much of it, but it continued to happen, so I asked my roommate to please move it back when he was done using it. He said he had never moved it or sat on it, only on the couch. I brought home a piece of chalk and made marks in front of the front chair legs on the floor. Sure enough, the chair continued moving each day, and my roommate continued denying moving it. About a year later, I moved out and into a charming cottage on Delaware Bay with my fiancé. Guess what? The chair moved there also, and my fiancé said he had not sat in or touched it. Then other things began to happen. One freezing winter morning, we woke up to find all the lights on in the living room and the front door standing wide open. I was positive I had locked up and turned off the lights. A few weeks later, my future brother-in-law and his boyfriend came to visit. He immediately loved the chair and offered to fix the broken places in the back, replace the springs, and reupholster it as a wedding gift. I loved the idea. About two months later, they returned a chair and it looked fabulous. My brother-in-law said they were really happy to get rid of it. He said as they worked on it in their basement, the lights would go on and off and doors would open and close. They swore it was haunted. However, after the chair was returned, it never moved again, and there were no more added instances. No more odd instances. End quote. Somewhat similar to these haunted chairs is a haunted couch housed at the consignment furniture and showroom in Waco, Texas. The couch was purportedly dropped off at the store one day by a spooked customer who claimed that said that he that a strange sulfur smell was coming from inside his home. Kitchen cabinet doors were opening on their own and cell phone signals cut out as one got close to the sofa. The phenomena continued after coming into the store's possession. Lights flickered on and off, objects in the immediate vicinity of the couch would move on their own, and on several occasions customers' information was erased from the computer system with no explanation. Colton Birch, who co-owns the store, said of the spooky item, quote, Everybody up here was basically afraid of it, and I did have a weird feeling when you sit down on it. One of the employees got in a minor car accident, and then we also had another employee who was in a minor fender bender the night after touching or moving the couch. A lot of you people don't want to have anything to do with it, especially when you show them the bloodstain under the cushion. This, end quote. Despite all of this, the sofa is apparently still there, drawing the droves of curiosity seekers. Adding to the tables and chairs, we come to haunted and cursed chests and cabinets. One of these is what's called the conjured chest whose story begins with a South Carolina plantation owner by the name of Jacob Cooley back in the 19th century. Cooley was supposedly known as a cruel and ruthless taskmaster who treated slaves like garbage. When his wife became pregnant, he tasked one of his slaves, a woman named Hosea, with crafting a chest for his newborn. When it was finished, Cooley did not like the finished product and flew into a rage, supposedly beating Hosea to death. Hosea's fellow slaves took revenge asking a conjurer to curse the chest so that the Cooley family would be doomed for generations to come. Although Cooley didn't like the chest, he still placed it in his unborn baby's room, but the baby would inexplicably die just days after birth, making it the first victim of the curse. After this, there was a string of deaths surrounding the chest. One of Cooley's sons was stabbed to death on his 25th birthday after putting some of his clothes in the chest. 
the chest was given to a newlywed couple as a gift, and the bride died soon after from an illness, and the groom died in an accident. The chest was acquired by Virginia Carrie Hudson Cleveland and her husband, Kurtley Cleveland. The pregnant Virginia put her first child's baby clothes in the chest. The baby was born prematurely and died the same day on August 8, 1915. Virginia and Kurtley Cleveland's older daughter placed her wedding clothes in the chest, after which her husband Wilbur was rushed to a hospital for an appendectomy and died from an overdose of ether. Virginia and Kurtley's neighbor, Herbert H. Sonny Moore, Jr., put his hunting clothes in the chest and was killed in a gun accident at the home. Author Virginia Carey eventually acquired the chest and used it to store her first baby's clothing, and the baby died shortly after. Carey's son Stanley then placed his hunting clothes in the chest and was shot the following day. The deaths would continue, and in the end, 18 people had died of the curse. Virginia had had enough of the chest and did not want anyone else to die. So she asked Sally, a maid who had worked for Virginia most of her life, if she knew how to break a conjure. The two of them went about performing a ritual which involved using the feathers of a dead owl and leaves from a willow tree, and this supposedly worked. The curse was lifted, and there were no further incidents associated with it. The chest now resides in the Kentucky History Museum, but it was not put on public display. All of this talk of spooky, haunted, and cursed items might make one want to just lie down and take a rest. But first you better make sure that bed isn't haunted as well, as there is an impressive number of supposedly haunted beds in the world. One of the most famous of these is called the Great Bed of Ware, which was once housed in the Saracen's Head at Ware in England. The exceptionally large four-posted bed adorned with intricate wood carvings is thought to have been made in the late 16th century by Jonas Fosbrook, a German craftsman, and was famous for its grandeur and size. Over the years, it was often mentioned in poems and prose, and was even mentioned in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, propelling it to greater and greater fame. The Great Bed was housed at several different inns, the George, the Crown, and finally the Saracen's Head, and over the years became just as famous for its purported haunting as its size. There have been many strange phenomena associated with the mysterious bed. Those who tried to sleep in it were kept awake by the pinching, nipping, and scratching that went on all night long. The bed would sometimes shake and shake and quake, and sheets were often ripped off by unseen hands. Some claimed to have been attacked in their sleep by an invisible aggressor who left bruises and scratches on their body. Still others claimed that apparitions would loom over them as they were in the bed. Even more ominous stories tell people sleeping in it dying not long after. One version is that the ghost takes offense to any person of a rank lower than royalty sleeping in the bed. And, the, and another is that the ghost dislikes couples having sex in the bed. As to who is haunting it, the commonly held idea is that it is Jonas Fosbrook, the creator of the bed, due to his displeasure at having his grand creation used in such a mundane manner. It was acquired by the Victoria and Albert Museum in 1931, where it remains to this day. In the spring of 1986, Alan Tallman, along with his pregnant wife Debbie and their two children, Kenny and Mary, Marianne, moved into a house in Larrabee Street, Horican, Wisconsin. At first, it was their dream home, and there was not a hint of anything paranormal about the place. But this would change in 1987, with the arrival of a bunk bed they had bought at a second-hand store. Almost immediately after the arrival of the bed, there were all sorts of paranormal phenomena going on. 
Doors would close on their own. Footsteps were heard. A radio and dial moved on its own. Radios and clocks turned themselves on and off. Chairs rocked, and a basement window was removed and placed on the floor. Additionally, the children repeatedly became sick, and the family started to suffer from terrible nightmares and visitations from an apparition in the form of an old ugly hag with long black hair and a glow about her like fire. The strange phenomena only escalated in intensity from there. One day, Alan was returning home from work in the early hours of the morning when he allegedly saw what he described as something glowing inside the garage in orange-red. There were flames coming out of the overhead door. There were two eyes in the windows. Shortly after this, he entered his home and was viciously attacked by an invisible force. In the following days, he would be frequently accosted by this unseen entity, sometimes receiving bruises and scratches from it, and on one occasion he heard a spectral voice clearly snarl out at him, You're dead. A pastor, Wayne Dobratz, was brought in to investigate and concluded that the presence was not only evil, but demonic. The terrified family finally decided to have the bunk bed buried in a landfill and left their house never to return, after which the haunting ceased. What was going on here? Speaking of haunted beds, another can be found at Chambercom Manor, which is nestled in the leafy Devon countryside not far from Ilfracom, England. The manor was originally the home of the Chaperon family, but today is open to the public. Within the manor is a chamber with a beautiful oak four-poster bed that is supposedly haunted by the spirit of a murdered young woman. One account tells of a couple who stayed at the manor and who would explain that their bed would often shake in the middle of the night or that there would be mysterious wet spots found on the sheets. The account says, quote, However, they found it fascinating rather than scary. Finally, they were able to make out the form of a woman sitting at the end of the bed and hear her sobbing. Fascinated, they began the task of tracing the province or history of the bed. Back they went through several owners, and yes, all had similar experiences. Further back, they researched through more people. Finally found a gruesome story involving the bed. A young woman had been attacked, viciously stabbed, and bled to death on the on the end of the bed. A rather harrowing account was submitted to the site Exemplar by a woman in Colorado named Vicky Royce, who claims that she owned an extremely haunted and cursed antique hutch. An antique enthusiast and regular at auctions and tag sales she was always on the lookout for unique furnishings and found one in a hutch that caught her eye. She purchased it and had it moved to her home. But even at this early stage, things were a little odd, as it seemed heavier than it should be. Kept slipping from the grip of the movers and at one point flung his doors open to hit one of the men in the head and leave behind a nasty gash. At the time, it wasn't seen as anything too strange, but this would change. Later on, that same night she had received the hutch, Vicky was awakened by a ruckus that seemed to be coming from the kitchen that sounded almost like furniture being dragged across the floor. She warily went to investigate, but when she did, there was no one there and nothing was out of place. The next morning, the weirdness would continue when she went to fetch some fresh flour so she had just put into the hutch the previous day, only to find that it was inexplicably rancid and crawling with insects. In the coming days, she began to notice a pungent scent in the vicinity of the hutch, but even then, it did not occur to her that anything paranormal was going on. The noises that she heard on the night the hutch arrived soon became a regular occurrence. Vicky would find herself awakened time and again by the sound of something heavy 
be moved across the kitchen floor, and every time there was nothing out of place when she checked. In the meantime, several more bags of flour were put into the hutch, and all of them became insect-infested overnight. In the days that followed, Vicky began finding red and black beetles she had never seen before crawling in the bowls and plates that she stored in the hutch, only in the hutch and nowhere else, and she was now starting to get a bit creeped out. To add to this, Vicky started having recurring nightmares in which she was being stalked by what she believed at first to be a woman wearing a house dress and holding a handkerchief over her mouth. In the dreams, the figure would pace through Vicky's house, sobbing and moaning. On one occasion, she stopped and transformed into the form of a creature with hooves and horns, after which she headed towards the hutch to enter it. These dreams continued night after night, so intense that she could not barely get any sleep. Vicky tried to put the nightmare out of her mind, but everything would get even scarier when one day she was in the kitchen when the doors to the hutch began opening and slamming shut one by one. The hutch then tilted on its own just enough to send the dishes chattering on the floor upon which the hutch righted itself and was once again stationary. She knew then and there that the hutch had to go. She had it dismantled piece by piece and then doused it with kerosene and lit it on fire in a controlled burn in her backyard watching it burn down to ashes. After this, the insects disappeared, her nightmares, her nightmares ceased, the strange smells dissipated, and she was at peace. The phenomena stopped. What are we to make of cases like this? A good case could be made that these are instances of what has come to be known in the paranormal world as spirit attachments. This basically means that a ghost, spirit, demon, whatever, has latched itself onto an item and sort of follows it around, tethered to it by forces we cannot yet comprehend. It is often said to have been an item of great importance or as having had some deep connection to the deceased, but there are various reasons why some spirit might latch onto an object, including curses, demonic invocation, and others. All we can really say for sure is that there are certain objects in this world, including furniture, that seem to have some amount of oddness orbiting them, and whatever the reasons may be, they are certainly damn strange indeed. So, there you go. And that is Eerie News for today. I will be back soon with some more weirdness. Until then, take care.